Thank you, Brother Dan. The title of our lesson this morning is Signs of the Times. The family theme is the return of Christ. Is he coming again, by the way? That's my question. Yes, he is. When? Well, thank you, Dan. Whenever he's ready. That could be when. Anytime, right? Amen. So he is coming again. Our objective this morning is that we be prepared to stand for Christ even during difficult times, waiting with assurance that he is indeed going to return. We'll be in the Mark, uh, in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, uh, verses 1 through 27. We've got two key truths this morning. Uh, first of all, Christ's return will follow a time of false teaching, wars, natural disasters, and persecution of believers. Second key truth, Christ's return will follow a time of terrible tribulation, and that's in the, in the latter part of our study today. But uh, first of all, the main thing we need to understand, now by the way, uh, we're going to find out that uh, Mark 13 is a very hotly debated chapter even today, but no matter what our eschatology views might be, one thing for sure, he is coming again. Okay, we know he is coming again. Bible basics, thing we should know. We're uh, encouraged to review the 51st Psalm, verse 10 this morning, where David said, Create in me a clean heart, uh, O God, I re- renew a right spirit within me. And of course, the entire Psalm was a prayer of David. So where does today's lesson, Mark chapter 13, where does it fit in the overall story uh, of the Bible? Well, many believe that we know that Mark wrote this gospel, and probably uh, on the... Uh, on the basis of what Peter had told him of his time with Christ. But it was written somewhere between A.D. 55 and A.D. 59. Now, the events, that's when Mark wrote about it, but he's writing after the fact. But what went on here in chapter 13 happened sometime around uh, A.D. 33. Well, let's do our get started. Uh, this, this last week, we had to celebrate the first day of spring. What does that mean? I do what now? A change in the seasons. And, of course, we know uh, here up north we experience all four seasons. And uh, But my question is, how do we know when they're coming, other than the date on the calendar? What does that tell you, Wayne? Yeah, okay, yeah. Somebody said something? Days get longer. Uh, I was with Brother Paul at the hospital on Friday, and uh, he was kind of looking out the window there. He said, you notice how much those trees are starting to bud out? And so we see different things. We see the signs that the seasons are about to change. And it won't be too long. Uh, Ronnie, you said the days are getting longer. Uh, they're going to get warmer, and soon we'll know, you know, summer is coming. And then toward, you know, in, in the summer, leaves start to fall. Uh, things begin to change. We know fall is on the way. So we understand about signs of the time when it comes to telling uh, the seasons. And just as there are certain signs that let us know we're going to begin a new season with weather, if you will, Jesus says there's some signs, certain signs that are going to take place uh, before he returns. So Lord willing, today we're going to look at some of those signs are and be encouraged that Christ is indeed coming again. Now, by the way, if you'll notice uh, the book of Mark, it's one of the shortest gospels there is. Uh, it's not near as long as Matthew or Luke or John. Uh, Mark is always in a hurry. Uh, some of his favorite words are immediately or straightway. 
And, uh, you know, again, very short gospel. doesn't mean it's not good. I'm not saying that. But it's a little bit different. So when you get to chapter 13, the, the, the chapter 13 really takes up the entire uh, known as the Olivet Discourse. Now, Matthew gives more chapters to that. Luke's making a little more time on that. Mark kind of condenses it down to one chapter. Now, in this chapter, now remember, we are in the Passion Week. And Christ has been going back and forth to Bethany, uh, <clears throat> from Jerusalem to Bethany and back in the next morning. And most of his teachings took place in the temple uh, during that week. And what we're seeing today is certainly no different than that. So uh, what Christ is doing here, he's, and it, it's, uh, he would leave the temple on this particular t- day, and he would go across the Kedron Valley, and he would, they would go to the Mount of Olives, and it was there he began to share them teaching about uh, the last things. Now again, this is the longest discourse of Jesus in the book of Mark. Again, not as long as the other gospel writers do it, but still yet in the gospel of Mark. And it's also very challenging. As I said earlier, it's one of the most debated topics in all the Word of God. So let's go ahead and get started. Number one, his return will follow a time of false teaching, wars, natural disasters, and persecution of believers. Somebody read the first 13 verses. Mark chapter 13, please. Yeah. 
Thank you, Dan. I want to go back up, if you will, for a moment to verse 1. And Mark says, as he, as Christ, went out of the temple, one of the disciples said unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Why do you think he said that? I uh, did some research this week. Do what now? The grandeur of the temple. And I, I'll be honest with you, I never really did a lot of research on Herod's temple before. Uh, Jason, do we have that picture that you... That, that was Herod's temple. Now, for those who don't know, uh, Herod was one of the most hated kings... He became a king when he was 15 years old, and about 18 years later, he started building the temple. And the problem was the Jews didn't like him, and uh, history tells that he had a private meeting with a, one influential Jew that gave his name, I don't remember what it was, and he was really sharing some regret, regret how he had treated the Jews. And so he wanted to build a temple for them. Now, by the way, he didn't care about God. And he didn't really care a lot about the Jews, but since they were under his rule, he wanted to kind of, he was a politician. He wanted to kind of, you know, butter them up a little bit. And, but he also wanted to make a name for himself. Now, uh, you think of how impressive that building was. And I would challenge you to Google that. There's a, there's a video on how it was constructed and things that went on there. And of course, most of it is, uh, being put together from historians because we don't have much of that left of the temple anymore, uh, mainly the western walls, the biggest part left that people can see of. But the problem they had was Mount Moriah was so narrow, it wasn't large enough to build what Herod wanted to build. So he actually built, you look at the perimeter of this thing, those walls. And around that, Temple Mount, the temple, Mount Moriah, same place where Abraham sacrificed, was going to sacrifice uh, Isaac, uh, but he builds these walls around there, and he has some girders going across there, uh, uh, you know, across the width of it. And of course, then he fills it in, and he builds that platform on top of that. Now the Jews were afraid, you know, uh, you know, he didn't like us anyway. We don't like him, and if he destroys this temple we have, uh, then he won't build one. Blah blah blah. And here we are, we're stuck. But again, they they couldn't do much about it. He's the king. They're under Roman rule. But he promised them, he said, I will not start, I will not tear the old one down until I have all the materials in place to build the new one. Now, what's interesting, uh, of what you're seeing there, the, this entire thing, uh, it took about 90 years to complete, okay, because they continually working on it. Now, of course, Herod didn't live to see the end of it, uh, but within a year, he had the perimeter walls up. And he had the, the temple proper built. It was ready for worship. And, of course, that satisfied the Jews. But those stones were magnificent. Some of them weighed three, 400 tons. Uh, how he placed them in there, how it, you know, all went together. And it was a fabulous building. Uh, I read that the stones in the, uh, well, the uh, 
tabernacle itself was, and there were so many things in this thing going on. They were so white that when the sun was shining directly on them, you couldn't look at them. I mean, it really gleamed. The doors were magnificent. And one writer talked about of one of the historians of the sun coming up and that those gold doors glistening in the sunlight. It was just an unbelievable edifice. And interesting, there were, uh, you can see there on the one end, those steps, those wide, grand steps, and they were there for a purpose. There had to be a grand entryway into the temple. And you went to the top of the steps, and you reached the court of the Gentiles. And what's interesting, within that court, not too far in, there was a, a, a narrow wall, not very high, but there were signs posted for Gentiles. If you, and I, I'm paraphrasing because I don't do Hebrew, if you cross this wall, your life is in your own hands, but you're going to die. And they found at least two of those signs. They have them, I think, in the museum in in one of those cities over there. Uh, anyway, they do have two of them that they have the architects, our archaeologists have, have dug up. But it was just a magnificent building. And it's also interesting, uh, when the Romans came to tear it down, they started on the cornerstone. And they literally took it down stone by stone. Now, Dan, you just read it a moment ago. Thank you, Jason, for posting that picture up there. And I, I would challenge you to Google that. Uh, i just give you a tip of the iceberg. But it was a magnificent building. But here's what I want you to realize. Solomon built a temple in his day. And there was no other building like it in the world. And Solomon thought, and the Jews thought, that temple would endure forever. Did it? No. The Babylonians came in and they destroyed it. They went into captivity. They come back from captivity. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, they build a second temple. And it wasn't as grand as Solomon. In fact, some of the older people who were there when Solomon's temple was there, they began to weep. Some of the younger Jews began to cry or to rejoice because they finally had a temple back now. But then that temple didn't last forever either. Herod comes along, and he demolishes that temple. And Dan, you mentioned a moment ago, and you're right, the reason the disciples pointed out, they were impressed. They were impressed with his temple. My question is, how impressed was Jesus with it? <laughs> Not at all. And now i, I got to confess, a lot of my ideas I get from somebody else. Uh, what I teach, what I preach, I, and I understand that, you know, but every once in a while, God gives me a thought. And I thought about this as I did research on this. The Solomon temp, the, the temple Solomon built so, so grand and so eloquent, they thought it would last forever, but it was sore down. Ezra, Nehemiah's Zerubbabel temple, not so grand, but still yet, it also was dismantled. And I have no doubt that the Jews may have thought, even Herod thought, hey, now we've got one, it'll last for how long? Forever. What did Jesus say? There won't be one stone left unturned. And it dawned on me, and I think I'm right, I hope I am, I don't believe that God ever meant for those temples to be permanent. Because had he meant for them to be permanent, what would have happened? They'd still be there today. Then it dawned on me. 
those temples were just a symbol. Because Peter says God is building a spiritual house. And we are living stones. And together we make up the temple of God. So it wasn't a building with real stones and mortar. God is still building a temple. Amen? And that temple he'll continue to build until Jesus comes. Because we are the temple of God. But in our story today, Jesus told the disciples, don't, don't let this beauty and splendor of this temple. Uh, and by the way, I, I don't know for sure, but, uh, and we don't know exactly which disciple. Uh, Peter names four later on. Many believe, uh, I'm sorry, Mark names four later on. Many believe Peter may have been the one who said it uh, here uh, because he often speaks out for the disciple. It doesn't matter who it was. Whoever said it to Jesus, I think they thought, well, you know, maybe the Lord will be impressed with this temple. But again, was he? No, not at all. So he tells them, (laughs) and I think it surprised them what he said. He said, understand this. There'll come a day when when not one stone is not overturned. What does he mean by that? It'll be, yeah. Now, by the way, of course, we know Christ is speaking here. But to the normal person, would they believe that? Could they believe it? No. How could it be? But he said it be totally destroyed. How did Jesus know that? Now he's got what does he know? Everything. Now, by the way, forty. Years later, the Romans, because of Jewish rebellion, they came to Jerusalem. They ransacked Jerusalem. Over a million Jews were killed, and the temple was demolished. Not one stone was left unturned. Now, hold on. My question is, why? Why did that happen? Say it again. It's God's plan. Now remember, the temple Solomon built was destroyed because they rebelled against God. And this temple, Herod's temple, was destroyed. Why? Because they had rebelled against God. And the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. Over a million Jews were killed. So they're leaving the temple proper, the temple mount. They cross across, go across the Kidron Valley to the top of Mount Olives. And from what I read this past week from the Mount Olives, you could look, it was higher than the temple. You could look over and you could see the temple. You had, did you go there, Dan, by any chance? Okay. I've never been there. What did you think about it? Okay. That valley, that's Keter Valley. Mm-hmm. What's left of it anyway, yeah. And, uh, so, but yeah. That. Now, what's interesting, uh, the disciples asked Jesus for a sign of when this was going to take place. 
And again, four disciples are mentioned by name in verse 3. Mark is the only one uh, who mentions those four disciples in this context uh, about this question. And the question in verse 4 has two parts. And what do they ask in verse 4? Two things. When will it happen? Okay. Absolutely. Okay. When will it be fulfilled? How will we know? I don't know. I think it's a good question, don't you? I mean, Jesus said it's going to happen. So when? Uh, well, the signs, nothing wrong with that. And so it's interesting, in this chapter, three different times, Jesus says to the disciples, take heed. What's that mean? Pay attention. Be on guard. Watch yourself, okay? So he said it three different times in the chapter uh, 13 of Mark's Gospel here. Now, so he talks about, number one, there'll be false messiahs, and they will claim to be who? Christ. But they're false. So watch out. He said, don't be deceived. They'll try to deceive you. And uh says there'll be false teachers, uh, false messiahs, and uh, they're going to come and they're going to claim to be the solution to the world's problems. Does that still happen today? Sure it does. And then in verse 7 and 8, he says there'll be, you'll hear news of wars and natural disasters. I said, don't, don't be alarmed by that. It's going to happen. Uh, doesn't mean the end is here, uh, but they are only the beginning of the signs that his return is soon to come. And he takes and sort of illustrates that, if you will, and he compares those events to the beginning of birth pains that a woman would go through. And the point is, early on in the process of giving birth, those pains may be uh, separated by different time, you know, but the closer you get to birth, the closer those pains come, the more intense those pains come. And so Jesus says, these things you're seeing will not be so frequent at the beginning, but the closer the, my return, the more and more and more you're going to hear and see of them. So again, he says, take heed, be careful. Watch out, be on your guard, if you will. Because he says the bottom line is, you are going to be persecuted. You'll be persecuted, not for your own sake, but for my sake. Jesus said you'll be taken before the councils, and that referred to the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish officials, if you will. He also said you'll be taken before the governors, uh, and that's the, uh, the Gentile uh, authorities. And he says you'll be, when you go before the Jews, uh, you'll be uh, beaten uh, with uh, uh, whips, you know, whatever it might, whatever they put in there. And by the way, how many times did they beat him? Each time. How many times were they allowed to beat, if, if you were a Jew and you were being beaten, how many times were they allowed to hit you with that whip? You what? Why do you say 40? You're right, okay? That was the law. But what they would do, they'd always stop at 39. Because they didn't want to take a chance. I'm miscounting and going over what God had revealed through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 25. But nonetheless, Jesus said, they're going to beat you for your faith in me. All of this will be done 
on account of Jesus Christ. They would endure persecution and they would be ridiculed for placing their faith in Christ. But here was interesting. They were asking him when what's going to take place. And certainly, as Christ shares some of the things going to take place before he comes, uh, very daunting to them to hear that. But it was true nonetheless. But notice there in verse 10, he said, Well, you need to know before I come back, the gospel is going to be preached in every nation. Now, whose job is that? Say it again. Yeah, it was their job. It's our job. And one writer says it's kind of interesting. Uh, they were worried about signs. And, of course, that's natural. We all do that. Uh, Jesus encountered the Pharisees several times in his ministry. They wanted a sign, different things. And, and so the disciples. So we, we get that. But Jesus, what you need to know is this. The end will not come until the gospel is preached in all the world. Now, by the way, I, I don't pretend to understand uh, to what extent that is, if it's every person or whatever, but I still believe that we're living in that time now, that Christ could indeed come at any time. So Jesus is saying to them and to us, don't worry about those other signs. They're going to happen. What we need to be doing is going about preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so said, you know, by the way, again, Jesus being God knows everything. He knows they'll be arrested. He knows they'll be taken before uh, and put on trial, if you will. And so he, he warns them ahead of time, don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't even think about it. Because whenever you stand there, the Spirit of God will tell you what and the right words for you to say whenever that time may come in your life. But also understand, and we have to, we have to remember this today, folks, Jesus said, the world will hate you because you love me. And by the way, why do they hate God's people? Because they hate him. They hated Jesus Christ. And so Jesus warns them about that. said, even people in your own family will turn against you. They will also hate you. But then he gives a, a wonderful promise in verses 12 and 13. All who endure to the end, Jesus said, will be saved. Now, by the way, we read of persecution throughout the book of Acts, other places in the New Testament. Uh, but it's interesting here. Jesus says we're talking about persecution that's connected to the second coming of Christ. And the only way... The only way anyone can endure those kind of persecutions is through the help of our Lord Jesus Christ. We simply could not do it without His grace. Now, we have to remember, folks, whether it be Herod the Great or Herod Antipas or any other foe of God's people, the battle is a spiritual battle. Satan is behind all of this. And we, never, we, we must never forget, when we come to Christ, we've stepped into a spiritual battle. Satan is warring against us. He doesn't want us to serve God. Now, by the way, in our text this morning, 
and even other verses in the Bible when we talk about persecution, does Jesus say if persecution comes? Yeah, when? You can, you can mark it down. It is going to happen. There's no if about it. It is going to happen. Now remember, we live in a world that's hostile to Jesus. We live in a world that's hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, you know, they simply don't like what we preach, what we teach, and what we live. But understand, the Bible teaches for you and I as believers, it's a privilege to go through this kind of persecution because of who we serve. And, of course, that's the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And also understand, Christ uses persecution to further his kingdom. Uh, we find later on in the book of Acts, uh, once Stephen is stoned and the persecution begins to uh, grow against the church, uh, the believers are dispersed, and as they go, they preach the gospel, and people are being saved. So God even uses persecution to help further the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, well, first of all, have you ever got up in the morning and said, boy, I hope I'm persecuted today? I don't think I've ever done that, right? So we don't look forward to it. It's not something we desire. But when it comes, we need to be ready for it to know that Jesus warned us about that. And we should never be uh, be afraid and draw back from sharing Jesus Christ just because of fear of persecution. So, again, count it in honor to suffer persecution For the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. We are sharing the good news of the gospel. Let's apply it. Expect false teachers. Expect wars. Expect natural disasters. And persecution. Not to get less. But to do what? Increase. As God plans and unfolds. Let's do a question, all right, for discussion. How can you and I as believers... How can we equip ourselves to recognize and resist false teaching? How can we equip ourselves to recognize and resist false teaching? By knowing what the Bible says. How do you do that? (laughs) You read it, amen. (coughs) We'll be preaching (coughs) a little bit about that topic this morning. But you read the Word of God. You take in the Word of God. And if we know the truth, and the truth is God's Word, when something wrong comes along, will we recognize it? Sure. We compare it to the Word of God. Question number two. As a Christian, why should we expect persecution? God's Word says it will. Say it again. Amen. And they hate us. Listen, folks. And, and by the way, thank God for Christians who live like Christians. Christians who not only read the Word of God, but take it into their heart and live according to the Word of God. And I want to tell you, when we live for Christ, it brings condemnation to the lost world. And they hate us for that. They absolutely hate us for that. Question number three. And Wayne, you said, and you're right, the Bible says we're going to have persecution. Right? Don't be surprised. So how does that help us to know that? How does it help us to know you can expect 
difficult times. <laughs> That's it right there. It won't be a surprise. And you know, I, I think about some of these things that Jesus said here. And how many know the disciples were just men like we are, flesh and blood? And I wonder how, how much that day they thought, well, you know, okay, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But if, if you read after the resurrection, on at least several occasions, the disciples said, would remember, say, you know what, he told us that. You know, whatever it was, he said that. And so it didn't come as a surprise. And by the way, when they come, when it comes to our life, is God surprised? No. He's never caught off guard. So key truth number one, Christ's return will come after a time of false teaching, wars, natural disasters, and persecution of believers. Number two, Christ's return will follow a time of terrible tribulation. Somebody read verses 14 through 27, please. I think that's all self-explanatory, don't you? Uh, First of all, let me remind you in prophecy, and not all of them, but uh, and I would guess a vast majority uh, would have a near future fulfillment and a far future fulfillment. And most Bible scholars believe that what, Peter, what Mark says here is one of those prophecies, or Jesus is talking about here. Uh, one example that I came to my mind just a moment ago was when uh, Isaiah told the king to make uh, a vow to God, and he wouldn't do it. Or, you know, ask God for a sign, he wouldn't do it. And uh, God says, I'll give you a sign. He said, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And initially it was talking about the child that I think Isaiah was going to have. 
that virgin being a young wife, a maiden. But we also know from putting Scripture together, it didn't just refer to that, it referred to a future fulfillment, and of course that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that portrayed in the Gospels. So you had a near fulfillment and a far future fulfillment. I think the same is true here. Now remember Jesus told the disciples uh, that in uh, just that before, well, he didn't say really when. He said there would come a time when all that te- that temple would be destroyed. Now, what they didn't know, I think Jesus knew. I know he knew. He's God. That happened forty years later. Forty years later, uh, A.D. seventy. So that prophecy certainly refers to at least a near event. That's the near. But also from the text, it's clear he's not just talking about the near event, but something else, a great time of tribulation that would take place in the last days. Neither one would be pleasant to live through. There would be horrible times for those alive during that period. But also the near event, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, would foreshadow the far event. It would be a type of that, if you will. Now, again, uh, Jesus reminds us in verse 14, this, this, uh, this was going to happen. Uh, it's going to be terrible. It is going to be terrible. In fact, it will be an idolatrous discretion of uh, the temple. And the Bible refers to it as the abomination of desolation. Now, Daniel is the first one to read about that, and he speaks about uh, there in Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel chapter 11, as well as Daniel chapter 12. And what Daniel is talking about is uh, pagan idolatry that's, and everything that comes with it. Now, let me sort of give you an example. Uh, during the days of Jeroboam I, or the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, he built uh, an altar uh, up in northern uh, in Israel. He didn't want the Jews going back to Jerusalem, ready to stay, and blah, blah, blah. And God sends a, a prophet to him, you know, kind of reprimanding him for not using real priests, and, and you can read it for yourself. And, of course, Jeroboam says, seize that man, arrest him. And when Jeroboam stuck his arm out, God froze it. I mean, it just that quick. And, of course, the prophet prayed for him. And he says, Jeroboam, there'll come a time. You think this altar is so great. They're going to burn bones on this altar. And it happened. And once it did, that altar was desecrated. It could no longer be used for worship. And it was not. So that's what it means, the, the abomination of desecration. Now, by the way, again, Daniel talked about that, and he wasn't talking about uh, Jeroboam the first, not there. Uh, but again, Jesus, and when you see that happen, it'll be a time for people to flee for their lives. Now, again, keep in mind, Daniel prophesied about it, all right? Uh, back in the book of Daniel. And the first time that happened was during the Maccabee period, about uh, 165 B.C. Uh, it's when Antioch uh, Antioch and Epiphanes came in and he offered us a pig on the altar in the temple. What did that do? 
It desecrated it, okay? And it was an abomination. And they could no longer use that temple until it had been reconsecrated. And there was a process that it had to go through. But it was a time of, uh, a terrible time for the Jews, even during that period. So that was the first time the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy took place. The second time was in AD 70. When the Romans come in and they not only desecrate the temple, not only desecrate the altar, they tear it all down. It is gone. And so it's, it's interesting, uh, those who were Christians in Jerusalem, they recognized the warning that Jesus had given, and they fled the city when they saw the Roman army uh, defile the temple in A.D. 70, and of course by running away, they, they saved themselves from being slaughtered when the city was destroyed. But the fact of the matter was still one million Jews died. A horrible time for the Jews. In verses 15 and 16, uh, they were, Jesus was saying to them, here's how you need to respond. Here's how you need to respond. When you see those signs, can I paraphrase it? Get out of Dodge. Amen. Don't, don't go back in the house. Uh, you know, don't, you know, don't try to take anything with you. Simply flee for your lives. If you're out in the field, don't go back home first. Take off running. Get out of there. And so, you know, uh, if, in, in, in fact, Jesus even, uh, mentioned, uh, those women who might be carrying, uh, uh, children being pregnant, he said, you know, uh, wow, my heart goes out to you because you still need to flee. It's a time of danger. And he also said, pray that this doesn't happen in the winter months. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus said this would be a time of distress like you've never, ever seen before. Never in any point in history or after. And he says the best news is God is going to shorten the days. Because even if he didn't, the elect would be in danger. They would be in danger. So Jesus says, fellas, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by anyone who comes claiming that I've come back. They'll deceive a lot of people, Jesus says. And some will have, even do wondrous signs. But remember, their, their purpose, their desire to lead people astray. And again, spiritual battle going on. And for the third, third time, Jesus says, take heed. It's going to happen. And then in verse 24 through 27, he goes back to their original question regarding the time of when this is going to happen. And he speaks about a time of great tribulation. In fact, it is so great, Jesus says, the heavens are going to be shaken. Now, by the way, again, I want to share, Christ is speaking about a near future and a far future event. Certainly the construction of of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, but also the time of the Great Tribulation. And once that happens, Jesus says, then I'm coming back. Visible, personal, 
bodily form to earth. He is coming back. Now, you remember what Jesus said, watch out for those who come claiming I'm, I'm, they're me, that I've come back. And the reason you don't need them people, when Jesus comes, guess what? Huh? Everybody will see it. We'll see him coming in the clouds of glory. How much time I got left, Jason? Okay. Won't take a whole lot of time this morning, but you know that when it comes to eschatology, there are several different views. Uh, probably about three or four main ones. And we spent a lot of time about a year ago on Sunday evening going through those, so I won't take that time today. Uh, but it usually revolves around the millennial reign. You've got historic premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. And uh, now here's the, the bottom line, folks. I've, I've looked, uh, at least even this week, some summaries of all three views. And I read about those who fall in this category and that category. And I look at some of their beliefs, and uh, there's not any of them I agree 100% with. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm right. It just I just see a, a lot of different variety there. But here's what I do know. I want to be ready. I want to be ready when he comes. I want to know, I want to know that Jesus Christ is my Savior. I want the assurance of salvation. And it doesn't matter when he comes, because he is coming. And I determined a long time ago, if he comes in a way I didn't expect it, I still want to go. I want to be ready. And my prayer is, and I pray for my family uh, every week, that they would come to know Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ as our Savior, it doesn't matter what your view is on the eschatology. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I know what your end will be, separate for eternity from the love of God in a devil's hell. Aren't you glad you're saved this morning? Let's all stand, if you would please. Next week, chapter 14, uh, we'll be in the latter part of the chapter. We'll pick it up in verse 32. And we're going to read about a time and study about a time when God suffered for us. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, encourage our hearts uh, to know that you've warned us about troublesome times, but also to know that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. God bless each one of you.